Okay, Sociology 110, we're talking about Lubov's Academic Ignorance and Black Intelligence. We're on the bottom of page 9, where um, uh, J.L., John Lewis, the interviewer, finds a problem with Larry's argument, and uh, you'll see how Larry deals with it. Bottom of page 9, John Lewis says, But just say there is a God. What color is he, white or black? Larry. Well, if it is a god, I wouldn't know a color. I couldn't say. Couldn't nobody just say. John, but now just suppose there was a god. Unless they're saying... No, I'm just saying just suppose there's a god. Would it be white or black? Larry. He'd be white, man. John, why? Larry, why? I'll tell you why. Because the average whitey out here got everything, you dig? And the nigga ain't got shit, you know? You understand? So, um, for in order for that to happen, you don't need no black guy that's doing that bullshit. So this is what LeBeau writes. No one can hear Larry's answer to this question without being convinced of being in the presence of a skilled speaker with a great verbal presence of mind who could use the English language expertly for many purposes. So Larry is a smart kid. And even though he speaks black English vernacular, and doesn't speak the way you would expect a middle-class white person to speak. He's obviously a smart guy. So, then they give the example of an interview with a middle-class black man named Charles. And uh, you can read it for yourself. LaBeouf sums it up by saying, Charles M. is obviously a good speaker who strikes the listener as well-educated, intelligent, and sincere. He is a likable and attractive person, the kind of person that middle-class listeners rate very high on a scale of job suitability and equally high as a potential friend. His language is more moderate and tempered than Larry's. He makes every effort to qualify his opinions and seems anxious to avoid any misstatements or overstatements. From these qualities emerge the primary characteristics of this passage is verbosity. Words multiply, some modifying and qualifying, others repeating or padding the main argument. So it's basically, he's not saying much. You're used to this idea of verbosity. You get it from your professors pretty much every day, right? So this is how he sums up our impression of Charles on page 11, right before the break in the page. The initial impression of him as a good speaker is simply our long-conditioned reaction to middle-class verbosity. We know that people who use the stylistic devices are educated people, and we are inclined to credit them with saying something intelligent. So that's really interesting. <coughs> then it goes into a rather technical discussion of black English vernacular versus standard English which we don't really have time for. But he says, he sums it up on page 12 by saying that um, this is the assumptions of people like Berider and Engelman. Number one, the low, lower class child's verbal response to a formal and threatening situation is used to demonstrate his lack of verbal capacity or verbal deficit. deficit. Number two, this verbal deficit is declared to be a major cause 
of the lower class child's poor performance in school. So on page 13, in the first full paragraph, he writes, This article has proved that numbers 1 and 2 at least are wrong, but what's wrong with being wrong? And he says there are two things. Um, there may be, these may be considered under two headings, the theoretical bias and secondly, the consequences of failure. So the middle class, the, um, the, the theoretical bias is that uh, the teacher, who, when they're hearing a student not using standard English, assumes the child is a poor speaker and a poor thinker and becomes a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's clear that when teachers label students as bad thinkers, Students end up doing badly. In fact, they did a study once, and it's not mentioned in this article, where at the beginning of third grade, they told the teacher that all the C students were A students and all the A students were C students. And sure enough, by the end of the year, the C students were getting A's and the A students were getting C's. So that's the sort of self-fulfilling prophecy that this kind of thinking produces. Okay, the second thing, so at the very bottom of page 13, the second area in which the verbal deprivation theory is doing serious harm is in the consequences of this failure and reaction to it. As Operation Head Start fails, the interpretations which we receive will be from the same educational psychologist who designed the program. The fault will be found not in the data, the theory, or the methods used, but rather in the children who have failed to respond to the opportunities offered them. When black children fail to show the significant advance which the deprivation theory predicts, it will be further proof of the profound gulf which separates their mental processes from those of civilized, middle-class mankind. So here's where you get the idea that this uh, culture of poverty approach leads you inevitably to the genetic deficit theory because when you do the kinds of things that, for example, Farkas recommends and they don't succeed, you end up concluding that the children are, in fact, stupid. Okay? So this sums up uh, the uh, LeBove article. It's actually one of my favorite articles I've ever read in my life, so I hope you enjoyed it. Um, and uh, this is our last podcast. I hope they were helpful. And if you have any questions, feel free to email me. Okay, bye-bye.